you for that beautiful song, and thank you, Daniel, for sharing your story with us. Let's take a moment and stand, shall we? It's hard to sit long, take a stretch. And I'll give Todd a moment to get things on the screen, me a moment to find the clicker. And uh, we have had a wonderful week. You can sit whenever you're fully stretched out. But uh, I know I have been blessed this week uh, as we've journeyed together. It doesn't matter what kind of sin you struggle with. God is the great pursuer. And uh, I marvel at how much he loves us and how patient he is. I want to talk about the role of conscience, conscience, insights for a transformed life. But before we do that, let's bow our heads again. Father, we pause this evening. We've already sensed your presence among us. And Lord, we are so grateful for the love you have for each one of us. And Lord, for the way in which you've reached down into this dark world to rescue us. And this great pursuit that continues even to this day. And Father, I pray for those that are still struggling. I know we have family members, all of us, that are not walking with Jesus. And so we lift them up before you this evening. And we invite your spirit now to guide our hearts and minds as we think and contemplate these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Where are we going? So here's what we're going to do tonight. A little introduction, and then we're going to talk about the conscience, the origin, the conscience as a mental framework and then sin and authority, and then we will conclude. So by way of introduction, I remember some years ago I was, there was some kind of a, uh, an issue that was being talked about, and I remember as I was reading and thinking about this, a lot of, many times people would say something like, well, I'll just have to follow my conscience. And I found that it was not uncommon for individuals to invoke conscience as a, sor- a source of authority where moral judgments are required, but unfortunately, many times when that happened, it was unqualified, and it was used as a means to avoid further discussion or to just stop discussion altogether. I don't want to talk to you. I'm just going to have to follow my own conscience on this. And I remember thinking at that time, I really need to understand a little more about the conscience because I want to know, you know, I mean, I didn't, I don't so much care about what other people's conscience says. I want to know what God's Word says and if it's in harmony with His Word. And you know, for the Christian, the notion of the conscience historically has been rooted and grounded in an understanding of the Bible. And there's, I think, a widespread ignorance in the church and in society about the role of conscience. And I think one of the things that we're not aware of is how much we interact with our conscience on a daily basis, often without even recognizing it. And you know that God speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks through our conscience. And so we want to think about this for a few moments this evening. Um, Biblically-based moral values not only defined our understanding of the conscience, but these values were also normative and they were universal. This was kind of the basis of what maybe was in the past. And as a result, the authority of the conscience was derived from a combination of biblical values and natural law. But you know, in our postmodern world, as we've heard, kind of sprinkled in throughout this week, things have changed. The idea of absolute truth and the possibility of knowing what is true uh, is no longer 
something that everyone agrees on. In fact, many people don't agree on that. And we heard last night as Conrad talked about this philosophy of despair. And we see a lot of despair and a lot of hopelessness in our world. In fact, many of us even here may struggle with that from time to time. It's the foundation of relativism. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And it's also the rejection of a revelation that lies outside the human experience, such as the Bible claims to be. And so I want to see if you recognize this. You've heard about the story of the blind men and the elephant. You know, if truth cannot be known, then everyone is equally blind. Well, this little parable story goes like this. There were five men that were introduced to an elephant. And of course, the first man went up and he felt the leg of the elephant and he described it. He said, elephants are like a tree. Of course, the next man went up, he was at the side of the elephant. Elephants are like a wall. And one was back grabbing the tail and he said, you know, elephants are like a rope. Another man was at the ear and he said, an elephant is much like a fan as he was being fanned by the elephant's ear. And the last one said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Elephant is like a, a sharp stone as he felt the smooth tusk. But you know, though blind men exist, couldn't there be someone who can see? Someone who sees the elephant and could communicate with the blind. In other words, what if there was a sixth person in this little story who could see? He could say to the first blind man, sir, you're holding the elephant's foot, but if you'll move a little bit, you will, feel, you will realize that this elephant has four feet, and you will feel the wall part, which is the elephant's side. This would be similar to revelation. Now, I like what Vishal Magdawadi has to say about this. He said, a blind man could test, verify, or falsify many of the six person's claims. But when he is told that the tusk is white, he must accept that on faith. Being born blind, he could not comprehend whiteness, let alone verify it. And then he asks the question, would this be blind faith? Not if he tested the six man's other claims about the elephant and found him to be trustworthy. Bigotry is to presume that everyone is blind and that no one knows or can communicate the truth. You know, much of the widespread confusion regarding the conscience stems in part from the fact that scientific naturalism in rejecting God has necessitated trying to figure out the faculties of the mind based on evolutionary processes. You know, Satan can deconstruct. I think we need to keep this in mind and remember this. Satan can deconstruct. He can destroy, but he cannot build. God has put things in place, and Satan is constantly trying to destroy. As Jesus said, the thief cometh but to do those things. So how the conscience is grounded. I remember someone earlier in the week we were listening to talked about origins and the necessity of understanding origins. And today, because we have postmodernism has removed the anchor of something objective, we're left with this nagging question, what is going to be the final authority in moral decision-making? Now, remember, this is still the introduction, but I want to leave you with this. This is an acronym that you can remember because there are five sources of authority that we live by or potentially that we can live by, philosophy, experience, science, tradition, and Scripture. And in our world today, probably experience has really come to the forefront 
of guiding people in their lives. It's predicated on a philosophy, but when you mix these things together, even when you put Scripture in the midst, when you mix Scripture and tradition and experience, what always happens to Scripture? It winds up sinking to the bottom and not having very much authority. And so we're going to move out of our introduction now and think about for a second the origin of the conscience. You know, if you don't understand the origin of something, you'll never understand its true meaning and its true purpose. And if we view Scripture as the highest authority and the source of truth, and we have a firm belief in the historicity of Genesis and that God created man in His image, our understanding of the conscience is going to be very different than it would be if we accept scientific naturalism and adopt our postmodern worldview. Now, interestingly enough, Charles Darwin wrestled with the idea of the conscience. In fact, in his book, The Descent of Man, he's quoting uh, from someone else here, but he's in agreement. He says this, of all the differences between man and the lower animals, the moral sense or the conscience is by far the most important. And he spends a lot of time in this particular chapter wrestling with the development through natural processes of a moral sense. How do you have a moral sense if there's no absolutes and if everything came about through chance processes? Now, it's interesting. The chapter is called Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals. Now, remember that term, lower animals, because I'm going to come back to it in a minute, and it'll make sense. And he goes, you know, at a minimum... Darwin was compelled to recognize the significance as the conscience as a cognitive function of homo sapiens, of man. And he struggled with that, and he wrestled, and you can read through it in this particular chapter. Now, the seeds of what has now become accepted were there in Darwin's thought, but here's a, a more recent quote from a book called The Ethical Primate. Human moral capacities are just what could be expected to evolve when a higher social creature becomes intelligent enough to become, to become aware of the profound conflicts among its motives. And so I put a diagram here to kind of give us an idea of how this might look. So if you look at this, evolution, man develops from evolutionary processes through this view, and then man develops into a social creature. And it's out of that community, out of that culture, if you will, as a social creature, that man's moral sense develops. Now, you're starting to see the implications and the problems with this. Man's sense of morality is rooted in his social sense, and society becomes then the ultimate norm for determining right and wrong. And morality develops within the human consciousness rather than from outside. Man himself defines morality, what's right and wrong, and this is why we have the idea of relativism and pluralism. We have the idea that all cultures are equal because if all cultures developed and then these different cultures develop a different sense of what's right and what's wrong, then who are we or who am I to stand and say, well, that's right, that's wrong. Now, this is the basis for postmodern relativism, and it flows from the con conviction that Morality and knowledge and things like this are continually developing. Now, the Bible does not support the notion of a relative or contextualized morality. 
It indicates that the moral sense or the conscience is not merely a natural phenomenon evolving via, you know, the social interactions of the community, the collective consciousness of advanced higher primate, primates. It's not, the, it's not the product of these things. It's actually a divine gift. Now, I'm going to be uh, quoting. We're going to go to the Bible. I'm going to use some, some insights from... Ellen White. Now, if you're here and you have not heard of Ellen White or you're online, Ellen White was a, uh, a lady who God used in a remarkable way. And it's very interesting to me that through different places and times in history, God has raised up men and women to call his people back to himself. And if you'll take time and read some of the things that, that Ellen White wrote, you will find that she had two primary focus, focuses in her life. Her focus was uplifting Jesus and drawing people back to the Bible. And it's a remarkable thing. But I want to begin here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Seeing therefore we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. There are other verses like this, but these verses testify to the universality of the conscience. God has given every one of, every one of us a conscience. And we'll find out a little bit more why that's the case. Now, Ellen White said this, God has given a conscience to realize the sacred claims of divine law. That's morality. And man's conscience represents a talent lent to him by God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of your conscience as a talent. You know, God commended individuals in the Bible that used the talents he had given them in the proper way. And there were individuals that took the talents and didn't use them in the proper way. But the, the implication is that the conscience is part of a divine creation and that man did not evolve into a moral creature, but that he was created that way. Morality and the normality of right and wrong is God has established that regardless of one's cultural context. You know, Adam, when God created Adam with a moral consciousness, he placed, as it were, the reins of self-government into his hands. He gave Adam a conscience. He gave him reason so that he could navigate, so he, he could orient himself properly toward the world that God had, had created. Now, Illinois says, or here, this is a little summary of this. The nature of conscience as a faculty of divine origin necessarily places all men under moral accountability to God. Now, if you're living in sin, that can be a frightening prospect. There was a time in my own life when I didn't want to hear that. You know what? When you know and you understand the character of a loving Heavenly Father, this is not a scary thing. This is a tremendous blessing. This notion also grounds a conscience in a value system that lies outside our own preferences and outside of societal consensus. You know, we know the text there in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, where it talks about the Gentiles who haven't heard even about God's truth that when they obey the law that God has written on their moral consciousness, as it were, that they are following what God would have them 
to do. And that text goes on and talks about the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 16 says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, actually this is, let me just read on here, although not having the law are a law unto themselves who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And I have a little chart, a little diagram that will help us get a sense of what it looks like, what morality looks like from a biblical perspective. So where man is created in the image of God and as a being created in the image of God, he is endowed with a sense of morality. And it's that sense of morality that grounds his social sense. So it's interesting, God is the ultimate source of moral norms of right and wrong. And so our community, our social sense, develops and grows out of the faculties given us by God. God has placed man under his law as an indispensable condition of his very existence. Thank you for sharing me that quote yesterday. Man's mental faculties were given to us as moral endowments. I like that. Now let's look at this as a mental framework. Now's where we're going to get to the heart of things. The conscience as a mental attribute within the framework of human cognition. Now, sometimes when we use the word conscience, we use it as a metaphor. And we don't talk about the conscience much. In fact, I, I read an article, I was quite surprised. There was some kind of a, uh, a crime that happened recently that was very, very despicable. And the person uh, who had committed the crime showed no remorse. And the article actually mentioned the fact that they had, this person had no conscience. And this was a secular article. I was quite surprised at that. But when we read about the conscience in the writings of Ellen White and in the Bible, it's very systematic. And it's very deliberate, and there's something very important that we need to understand because it's not just a metaphor. It's not just some generic, value-sensitive intuition. Now, Ellen White wrote this in describing the conscience, conscience, and I made a little diagram to help us put these pieces together. She said, we have reason, conscience, memory, will, and affections. And what's that next word? All. All the attributes that a human being can possess. Now, that's pretty interesting. Now, it's going to get more profound because in describing the humanity of Christ, she argues that it is precisely the possession of these five attributes that indicate that Jesus came as a human being with the full capacity to live and to function and be tempted as we are. Notice what she says. He, Christ, trod our earth as a man. He had what? Reason, conscience, memory, will, and affections of the human soul which was united with his divine nature. Now this is, these five attributes represent the ontological framework. That's a big word that can make you look smart. It really means being. You know, logos is the word, is the word for knowledge. It's the knowledge of the being of being of what we are as human beings. It's the framework of thought in which Ellen White addresses the issues of conscience. So when you read about the conscience in Ellen White's writing, it's 
you, keep, you have to keep in mind that it's within this framework. Now, she says this, in comparing, well, in comparing man with other creatures God created, she states that man alone possesses reasoning powers to understand the claims of divine law and a what? And a conscience to feel the guilt of transgression. And so the, out of these five attributes, it's conscience and reason that set human beings apart from the animal kingdom. Regarding the conscience, Ellen White states further, she says, to man alone, the crowning work of his creation, God has given a conscience. Now, I know that when you come home and your dog has ripped the trash all over the kitchen floor, it looks like your dog has a conscience, right? Sit there, he's, he's very, you know, sh ashamed at this, and maybe you put him outside with a sign around the neck, you know, and shame your dog and post the pictures on Facebook. I don't know what you do, but, you know, dogs don't have the same kind of conscience. They don't have a moral capacity to feel guilt. Now, cats don't have it at all, because if a cat does something, what do they do? They just walk away. But notice this. Man was created with a perfectly balanced mind. This is from the health reformer. Every quality of mind was well proportioned, each having a distinctive office. Remember these five attributes? And yet dependent upon one another for the full and proper use of any one of them. The Bible talks about having a well-balanced mind. It's having these, these attributes in the proper relation to one another. Now, in, in uh, speaking of these five attributes, this is why, and you've read, sometimes Ellen White talks about the higher and lower powers of the mind. This is what she's talking about. Conscience and reason are the higher powers of the mind. Memory, will, and affections are the lower powers of the mind. Okay, so let's go on here. Um, those who have, would have clear minds to discern Satan's devices must have their physical appetites under the control of what? reason and conscience, the moral and vigorous action of the higher powers of the mind are essential to the perfection of Christian character. So I want to put this little diagram up here. You can see I put the, you know, we have the higher powers, which is conscience and reason, and we have the lower powers, memory, will, and affection. Now, you've read the statement if you've read the little book Steps to Christ. And if you have not read anything that Ellen White has written, I would encourage you to read Steps to Christ. It is the most beautiful book, I believe, ever written outside the Bible on how to be like Jesus. So I would encourage you to read that. But if you've read it, you remember the statement where Ellen White says, the will is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice Everything depends on the right action of the will. Now, you might say, well, how can, how can this be the case if the will is the governing power in the nature of man? I want to read the statement again. Listen to it carefully. The, the will is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends upon the what? The right action of the will. Ellen White says in Child Guidance, page 39, the will must be trained to obey the dictates of reason and conscience. You know, earlier in the week, someone, someone was giving a presentation. I don't remember exactly who it was, but they, they made an analogy between the mind and a car, and they said that the emotions are like the gas pedal. 
and how dangerous it is when the emotions run away, you know, pedal to the metal. You have to have brakes and you have to have a steering wheel. So if we would use that analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, but we might make the will synonymous with the engine. What would conscience and reason be? How about the brakes and the steering? Right? It doesn't do you much good to have two, you know, 350 horsepower if you can't control it. Doesn't do any good to smash the pedal to the metal if you don't have any brakes. And so I want to put this up here, a little, another little diagram, the higher and lower powers of the mind. Now, does your dog remember you when, he come, when you come home? Absolutely. Your dog have a will? Absolutely. The smaller they get, the bigger the will. How about the affections? It's true. How about the affections? Dogs have affections. That's why we love dogs. Cats have it too, just in smaller proportion. Now, I love cats. But then man has five. We have memory, will, and affections. Now, if we go back to our illustration of the car, what would the trunk be? The memory. And all the trauma that we experience, if we don't deal with that, if we don't let God take that, what happens? The trunk gets fuller, fuller, and fuller until the car doesn't go anymore because we're so weighed down with the things we've experienced. And when God takes a person out of sin, the first thing he does is begin to clean the car up, doesn't he? It's a beautiful thing. Elmite uh, said this, dumb animals, and she doesn't mean dumb in the sense of the neighbor's dog. She means dumb in the sense of the fact that they don't have what? Conscience and reason. Dumb animals need to be trained, for they have not reason and intellect, but the human mind must be taught self-control. Now, possession of these distinct higher qualities means that man has been placed under a higher law. Man has been given an intellect to see and a conscience to feel, thus making him morally accountable to God. Animals are not morally accountable to God but we are. And it's a beautiful thing because it shows how much God loves us, that he's made us this way. Now, in endowing man with these moral attributes, God intended, intended conscience and reason to maintain man's accountability to him by guiding his thoughts and actions according to God's will. And the conscience is part of a God-ordained system of mental constituents that form really the fabric of of our humanness and Jesus came to this earth as a human to rescue us from the trauma and the pain that we've experienced now I want to go to the third part here sin and authority because when man fell something happened to this these mental attributes and how they worked in congruence with one another and we're still experiencing that today our minds, God, the process of God healing us is bringing those five elements back into harmony with each other and with his will so that we can be like Jesus. In the beginning, man was created, this is from great controversy, in the image of God. He was perfect, in perfect harmony with the nature and the law of God. The principles of righteousness were written upon his heart. But sin alienated him from his maker. He no longer reflected the divine image. His heart was at war with the principles of God's law. And then this very, very insightful statement that she makes here. 
She says, when man fell, the law of self was set up. So we see something, something is happening in the mind of man where this harmony that existed there previously, when sin comes, a, a fracture happens. She says, this law harmonizes with the will of sinful humanity. There is no strife between them. But when the Word of God speaks to the conscience, telling of a higher than the human will, even the will of God, man's desires, that's the affections, the passions, man's desires to go a different way irrespective. Actually, let me go back and read that last part. Even the will of God, man's will desires to go its own way irrespective of consequences. So what's happened is conscience and reason have been dethroned. And the will, in harmony with a corrupted memory, conscious guilt, and affections and passions that are, that are there, the will goes in a different direction. Now, if you read through Ellen White, she describes the conscience as a result of sin. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's pretty extensive. These are some of the words she uses to describe the conscience, dead, slumbering, Torpid, darkened, quiet, dormant, depraved, callous, insensible, bad, stupefied, blunted, warped, corrupt, defiled, paralyzed, asleep, hardened, guilty, unimpressible, enfeebled, and unenlightened, blackened, pacified. Can we see the mercy and the long-suffering of God in this list? This is what we're like apart from God. This is where God goes to try to rescue us. When he reaches down to the depths of human depravity into the darkness of a blind mind and a deadened conscience to try to awaken human beings that are alienated from him. And God still works these miracles today. As a conscience, as a conscience, as a consequence rather of sin, both reason and conscience are blinded by the lower passions, Ellen White says, and must be restored by divine intervention. Now, I want to put a thing up here. Here's kind of what happened when the fall happened. Conscience and reason. You know, now it's interesting. Conscience and reason, you know, through modernity, during uh, modernity, science and reason, they elevated, science and reason were elevated as the ultimate means of determining truth and displaced, you know, the, religion, the religious traditions of the past. So it happened in modernity. Reason was elevated. Conscience was marginalized because it was through religion that the conscience would become sensitive to the truth of God's Word. And we need both. Notice what the Bible says about this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? transformed by the renewing. Now, I want you to focus on that word a second. Re, take it apart a for a moment. Renewing. It's almost like putting back something the way it was in the beginning. God wants to take your mind, put reason and conscience back on the throne, bring the lower passions into subjection to a sensitive conscience and a sanctified reason so that through the work of the Holy Spirit you can live a life in harmony with Him.
Now, Ezekiel says this, puts it this way, a new heart also will I give you. Now, we know the heart is not talking about the pumping organ in the Bible. It's talking about the mind. It says, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, this is from Signs of the Times. It is the truth as it is in Jesus that quickens. What's the word quicken mean? means to make alive, to bring back to life that dead conscience, quickens the conscience and transforms the mind, for it is accompanied to the heart by what? By the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews says this, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your what? Conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, I find it fascinating that Ellen White talks about the conscience as the spiritual eye. She says, the spiritual eye, the conscience, is that with which we estimate good and evil, discern truth from error, and distinguish between the common and the sacred. Now, if you read on in her writings, you'll find she also refers to reason as the spiritual eye. Now, if you only have the function of one eye, that can be problematic because it can be very difficult to discern depth. And if you have an overly sensitive conscience, but if your reason is all skewed, what can happen? You can, have, you can go off track very easily. If you have an overly sensitive conscience, but if you're not thinking, you can also go off track very easily. And so God wants to bring these two things back, conscience and reason, to be able to discern His truth, His character, and His love so that we can live in this dark world as he would have us to live. It is by faith that the spiritual eye beholds the glory of Jesus. This glory is hidden until the Lord imparts the light of spiritual truth, for the eye of reason cannot see it. You can be extremely intelligent, but if your conscience has been deadened, in fact, Paul talks about this in his letter to Timothy, that there will be those who have their conscience seared by a hot iron. Now, they could be extremely intelligent and reason could be functioning, but it's not sanctified and it's justifying something other than God's will. The health of the conscience is in direct relation to the proper derivation of the moral principles on which it seeks to govern thought and action. What does that mean? In other words, for the conscience to direct the moral life in harmony with the will of God, it must derive its authority from the correct source. God never intended the conscience of man to be like a rogue faculty of the mind that just does whatever it thinks is right and whatever the passions convince it is the right thing to do. God wants the conscience to be ruled by an objective standard or authority. Now, this is what Ellen White said about it. She said, truth, Bible truth, is to become the authority for the what? The conscience and the love and life of the soul. You know, some people say, well, my conscience, my conscience tells me this is what I should do. Well, what happens if your conscience is not grounded correctly? What if the authority of your, of your conscience is a postmodern cultural consensus and that reason has convinced your conscience that, hey, this, this is okay? Conscience has to be renewed and restored. The Bible says this, 
Your word is a what? Lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Take a moment to think about this text. This is not talking about a thousand lumen flashlight. This is not talking about physically walking down a path. God's word is a lamp to direct the pathway of life. This is talking about the mind. God's word is a lamp to the feet because it's through the mind that the actions, through the conscience and reason, that the actions are guided and a light to the path. Conscience is only as reliable as the foundation of authority upon which it rests. And that's why time must be given to the study of God's Word. You know, you may not, this may be new. You may be wrestling with this throughout this last week. You may be wrestling with it in your life now. You say, well, I don't know about this. Take time and find out. Spend some time reading God's Word. The Bible says taste and see. And if we'll take time, God will show Himself to be faithful the conscience must be quickened by, what's that next word? Constant contact with the Word of God. Constant contact with the Word of God. It's, if the conscience is not brought into contact with the Word of God and derives its authority from other, some other source, such as society, culture, the will, preference, the emotions, it will become a willing a willing accomplice in rebellion against God. Such a course will cause the conscience to be sequestered by the lower passions in condoning immoral judgments and actions. And you got a strong will coupled with the passions and weighted down with the guilt and shame that comes. It can easily lead us to do the wrong things. You know, this, this is a reality that speaks to the, the reliability of the conscience. We must test our conscience by the Word of God. And that must be a commitment that each one of us makes on a personal basis. You know, I said at the beginning, people, you know, I had this experience where people were calling upon conscience, but you know, conscience is never to take the place of a thus saith the Lord. If you say, well, my conscience, I just have to follow my conscience. If you're following your conscience in a way that's not in harmony with God's word, you're breaking his heart and you're harming yourself. And you'll never find hope, you'll never find peace, you'll never find happiness and meaning in this life, certainly not in the life to come. So let's look and see what we've, what we've seen. Take a little review here. The conscience is the God-given internal capacity to discern between right and wrong. A faculty of the mind that in congruence with reason serves to elevate, control, and guide the thoughts and the actions. Through creation, God endowed man with specific mental attributes that would allow him to maintain moral integrity. Moral integrity and loving obedience to God's law. All man's actions were to be subject to the authority of this perfect standard and conscience was to play a vital role in discerning between right and wrong. And due to the reality of sin, of course we live in that world now and the consequences of the fall upon our minds and upon the mental capabilities, capacities that God has given us, man's mind has become unbalanced and what's the result? Internal strife? External conflict, internal strife, all of these kind of things that happen to us. We say, why did I do that? God wants to bring our minds back 
into harmony with his will. And, you know, without divine intervention, the conscience is unable to direct and guide the lower attributes of the mind in a manner that is according to God's will. Through conversion, the conscience is restored to the position of supremacy God originally intended. Upon the basis of the authority of the Word of God and through the direction and influence of the Holy Spirit, the renewed conscience, along with reason, is able to reliably guide the thoughts and the actions. Isn't that beautiful? God can do that for every one of us. There's no one that's gone far enough within the hearing of my voice. The Holy Spirit can't reach down if we're willing. First, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, but even if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has what? Blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. You know, it wasn't too long ago there was a 20-year-old kid sitting in the attic of an apartment listening to a song on a stereo trying to silence the convictions of the Holy Spirit working through a conscience that didn't want to be heard. And as I was sitting there in that room, there was a song playing on the radio that said this, my, these were part of the lyrics, my thinking is derailed, I'm tied up on the tracks, the train of consequences, there ain't no turning back. And it was in that moment that God reached down into my conscience and gave me a very clear picture of where my life was heading and where it would wind up if I continued to ignore the voice of His Spirit on my conscience. And I remember driving home a couple weeks later in my beat-up old car in the middle of a rainstorm, tears coming down my face saying, Lord, if you'll have me, I'm coming back. God can speak to a conscience even of those who are ignoring him. Romans 12, verse 2 says this. I think we lost the remote let me hit the right button, that would help. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, every one of us has been given the mental tools and the cognitive faculties that in combination with divine grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live and not perish that we can walk in this life according to the will of God and that we can shed and share the light of truth and the love of God with those around us so they can find hope as well. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, as faith grows, the conscience will be sanctified through obedience to God's will and the intellect will be strengthened. And the conscience will be enlightened and made sensitive and it's in this way that God once again restores our minds so that conscience can govern the way he intended. I want to end with this text. I think Daniel had this one on his part of his presentation too. Therefore if any man be in Christ he is a what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And I want to ask you this evening as we close and as the Sabbath hours are upon us,
Maybe you've never prayed this prayer before. This is a promise. It's one of the greatest promises in the Bible of what God can do for anyone who's willing to open their heart to Him. And I want you to, I want to appeal to you, if you've not made that decision to allow Jesus to come in, if your conscience, if you've been wrestling there in the recesses of your own mind and you've been unwilling to say, Lord, if you'll have me, I'm coming back. I want to appeal to you as I pray that you make that commitment and allow God in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for creating us in such a marvelous way, creating us to understand who you are and to realize and to know your love and your character and your will. And Lord, we get little glimpses from your word, but you have so much more for us if we'll fully and completely surrender. So help us. Lord, help those little glimpses to grow. And as we deepen our understanding, as we get into your word, that our conscience might become more sensitive and the Holy Spirit might continue to speak to us through the pages of Holy Writ. And Father, may the decisions we make here be the beginning of a new journey with Jesus. And may that journey take us to rejoice on that day when you come in the clouds of heaven. Father, forgive us where we've resisted the working of your spirit on our consciences and make us sensitive and help us to accept and to open our hearts to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.